0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. On today's show, most New Orleanians know about the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club, but they may not know about the organization's struggle for recognition and ongoing charitable work. Zulu President Elroy James will join us for more on Zulu history. Plus, we hear from a Lafayette man whose spicy peppers are featured in a new Hulu TV show, all about the spicy world of chili chasing. But first, it's Thursday, and that means it's time to catch up on politics with the Times-Picayune, New Orleans Advocates, Editorial Director and Columnist, Stephanie Grace. Steph, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So, Governor Landry keeps making news. It yeah. seems his, uh, his campaigning and winning on what was a very vague platform has turned into all kinds of proposals. Uh,
1: it sure has, and a lot of them are coming as surprises, I have to say, to people who watch the campaign closely like us. In just the last week or so, Landry has thrown out a bunch of ideas that are sure to be controversial. He wants to send Louisiana National Guard members to the Texas border, where his ally Greg Abbott, the governor, is in this very politicized showdown with the Biden administration. He says he wants to merge the state's standalone Coastal Protection Agency into the department that oversees oil and gas permitting. He wants to make changes to a state industrial tax break to basically do away with the requirement that companies that get the break show that they've created jobs. And Mm. he's also weighed in on this controversial proposal for Louisiana Blue Cross Blue Shield to sell to a for-profit company. Uh, We learned this week that he insisted the foundation that would be created with the proceeds only sent healthcare research dollars to one institution the Pennington Biomedical Research Center in Baton Rouge but not any other university in the state and that obviously leaves out some major players like LSU and Tulane
0: is it just a case of uh, governor Landry realizing it's good to be a super popular governor
1: well i i mean i think that's probably how he's approaching it but mm-hmm. i don't know cuz some of these are really getting pushback immediately and, you know, I'm reminded of the first thing he tried to do, which was close the the primaries when he became governor. And he got a lot of pushback and the proposal was very much watered down from fellow Republicans in the legislature. So these are people who are theoretically his allies. They were talking about kind of unitary government, but immediately he's getting pushback. So I think... Um, Yes, it's good to be governor, but we'll see how far that gets him. Well,
0: he's also getting pushback from uh, uh, Senator Cassidy, and I, that's kind of surprised me.
1: Very much so. So remember, Senator Cassidy endorsed him. Now, the proposal that will affect Senate elections by the time he comes for re-election... You know, it could hurt him. He, he Senator Cassidy would do better with the fully open primary. Mm-hmm. The compromise, what, what Landry was able to get through, allows people who are unaffiliated voters to vote in Senate primaries. But it's still there's still a party primary. And the, the theory is that that favors a more conservative candidate, perhaps a candidate who did not vote to mm-hmm. um, convict Donald Trump at impeachment.
0: Yes. And and Republican Congressman Garrett Graves has raised some questions, yes?
1: Very much. And that's over the coastal proposal because mm-hmm. he um if you remember before he went to Congress, he was the head of the coastal the state coastal protection authority under Governor Bobby Jindal. And that's an office that's always been, you know, it's very well regarded. It's like very laser focused on rebuilding the coast. So the idea of merging it into this oil and gas permitting agency that is considered very industry-friendly is going to be controversial. Um, You know, new governors get a lot of leeway, but, you know, Landry is really pushing the boundaries here, and I think it's going to be so interesting to see what happens, because, you know, this is not really the way I envisioned it, Mm -hmm. of, you know, we finally have a Republican governor and a supermajority Republican legislature. You know, you kind of figured they would start off in tune, but not necessarily.
0: And of course, in the next week or so, we're going to have the special session on criminal justice. Right. Any and any new revelations about no, that? No, they
1: haven't issued the call yet. But, you know, the call basically says these are the areas that mm-hmm. you can legislate on. So, if the um, if the last special session is any indication, there may even be some surprises there. <laughs> um, but a lot of people are are waiting eagerly to see what that will include.
0: Well, that'll give us a lot to talk about. The Times-Picayune and New Orleans Advocates Editorial Director and Columnist, Stephanie Grace. Thanks for being here. Thank you. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. The Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club has one of the highest profiles among such organizations. Joining us to help understand more about them is the president of Zulu, Elroy James. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Can you give us briefly some of the history behind Zulu's Social Aid and Pleasure Club? When was it founded? Its What was its original purpose?
2: The history of the organization is quite colorful. Um, it was founded in 1909. As, as some of the writers suggest, it was founded by a group of laborers um, after visiting uh, a play put on by the smart set um, that never was and never would be a king like me. And um, it was formed as a benevolent organization and as most people who are familiar with uh, new orleans and its culture but in particular in the black community um, there was a proliferation of social aid and pleasure clubs in the early years that were all founded on this aspect of providing dignified burial for its members and so the earlier existence of zulu was providing insurance policies but more particularly providing for the burial of its members. And over time, the organization started parading uh, through the streets of the city of New Orleans, particularly in the um, urban areas, the back streets of the city, because blacks were not allowed to parade on the main streets of the city, because we all know Mardi Gras in the city of New Orleans was largely segregated, so the earlier, existence is founded in a benevolent society, social aid and pleasure club, taking care of its members and then moving towards the parading aspect in the black community.
0: What makes it distinct from the other social aid and pleasure clubs? I, I see in varying places there are anywhere from forty five to seventy such pleasure yeah. club organizations.
2: I, I I think the unique what makes the Zulu Associated Pleasure Club unique um is that it's it's benevolent existence but is strong bond of brotherhood that that formed um, from the organization um, the members of the organization the brothers of the organization you will find a really close-knit group of guys organization boasts today of about 800 um, regular and associate members and inside of that organization you find different pockets of brothers and members that has a have a great relationship a strong bond. Mm-hmm.
0: So Zulu began parading in 1909, I believe, as the Tramps. That inspiration came from a vaudeville show?
2: Yeah, that's what the writers suggest. As I've been in the organization 30 years now, 31 years in June, I'm often amazed by um, what the writer suggest and how much do we have that's inside the organization that well, that documents um, its early existence. So Borrowing from all of the historical writings that we probably know didn't come from the organization, it, it started parading as a tramps from the play that was put on by the smart set Never was and never will be a king like me. And the guys who saw the play, the founders of the organization who saw the play, borrowed the theater look mm-hmm. and adapted it for the look of the organization. And a precursor to Zulu is Zulu Tramps.
0: We're speaking with Elroy James, president of the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club. Over the decades from the early 20th century through civil rights and integration, many have pointed to the rivalry uh, that occurred between Zulu and Rex, the preeminent black organization and the preeminent white organization. Can you break that down for us a bit? Tell us if there is still a bit of that rivalry going on today?
2: Yeah. You know, as as I suggested earlier, um, Mardi Gras was segregated between the the, the white aristocrats and um, black um, in the city of New Orleans. And so whether or not there's a rivalry, I know some people write that the birth of Zulu parading was to poke fun at the white aristocrats of the city of New Orleans. I'm not so sure if that's what it was, but what we do know is that when, it, when we were founded, the organization was founded by a group of laborers and Certainly those individuals could not afford the elaborate costume of the, their white counterparts. And so what they borrowed was masculine traditions from the play and design costumes because M- Mardi Gras is a masculine type festival that probably was held in comparison to the white aristocrats, right? And so you saw a stark a difference in the looks of their minority and the way they're were riding through the city streets, the main streets of the city of New Orleans, as opposed to what the founders of Zulu was riding and what they were depicting at the time. So I think it created a dichotomy, but I don't necessarily know it was designed to poke fun. So does it exist today? Um, as president, I would like to say that we are Mardi Gras, right? Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it exists, but we have accepted the fact that um, on Mardi Gras Day, People line the streets to see the splendor and pageantry that our organization has maintained for a long time.
0: Rex has its Pro Bono Publico public service arm that's made donations since Hurricane Katrina. What sorts of public outreach does Zulu engage in today?
2: You know, I've had the opportunity for the last six years leading the organization just kind of thinking about what we do in the philanthropic space and how for many, many years, dating back to the early 70s, you could find old photos of our members striking cans on the city streets of, of the city of New Orleans, raising money for sickle cell anemia. That was first documented efforts of our organization really trying to answer the call of our community. Uh, in 2005, after Hurricane Katrina, the then president of the organization felt Passionate that children should have some normalcy, and he gave birth to our Toys for Tots program. Um, over the years, that program has continued and has continued to morph in many different areas. And so we're still driving um, toys in the community. But we've now we know our kids are into electronics. We're now starting putting in hands um, the electronic learning devices that's hoped improve outcomes for our, for our children. And I'm proud that since I've been the president, we have been very intentional about providing scholarships to. All of our young ladies, our Zulu maids, they were present through through carnival time. And we've been able to put scholarship money in each one of the young ladies' hands since I've been the president. Then we have our mentoring arm of the organization, our junior Zulu. So we work um, year-round trying to create positive outcomes during uh, holiday time. We're putting food on the tables of individuals who are in need. Mm -hmm. And so um, while we don't, um, we have not been doing it through the foundation, I guess is what I should say now, We've been doing it through just the operation of the organization. When the community needs some help, they reach out and Zulu is always willing to answer the clarion call. But I'm proud to, to announce that um, this year we we have stood up our um, Zulu Community Foundation where we're anticipating driving more of our community programs through our 501c3 arm of the
0: organization. I've had some friends who have come to town and they've asked this question, so I'll get the official answer from you. You're known for coconuts. Why coconuts? When did you start throwing them?
2: Wow, that, that's a great question. Coconuts came into existence in the earlier years of the organization. You will see earlier in pictures of our kings and riders throwing coconuts in their unshaved format. And um, we were not able to, to buy the elaborate glass beads that the white crews were throwing during the time. And so our founders endeared the coconut as official throw for the Zulu Associated Pleasures Club. Um, over time, the coconut has become more elaborate in design. It's now thrown in the shade format, shellacked, glittered, uh, our official coconut colors of gold, silver, and black. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a signature throw. Why the coconut? Don't know why they endeared that 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 item. But um, if you just think about all of the look of the fruit in its early years, it it's a, certainly dovetails well, with um, the grass skirt and the Lord can and all those, the theater look that they borrowed from.
0: What is the one thing you want parade participants to know when they see the big shot and the Zulu members roll by on Fat Tuesday?
2: One thing I think I want all to know is that what they are enjoying is put on by a nonprofit organization and members aren't paid one penny to do what they do. It's a labor of love and a commitment to the history of the organization and the culture of Mardi Gras in the city of New Orleans. So as they see it, appreciate it for what it is. It's a labor of love and no one is paid for it.
0: The president of the Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club, Elroy James, thank you for spending some time with us.
2: Certainly an honor. Thank you for reaching out and, and really being intentional about capturing the history of our organization.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Super Hot, the Spicy World of Pepper People is a new Hulu docu-series that chases chili heads around the country as they hunt for the spiciest pepper. One of the stops, Lafayette, Louisiana, where Troy Primo promotes his seven-pot Primo as one of the hottest peppers in the world. For more on his creation, the world of chili pepper eating, and the new Hulu series, we're joined by Primo himself. Troy, welcome to Louisiana Considered.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Can you start by telling us just a little about yourself and and how you got into the pepper industry?
3: Well, I played rock and roll for years, you know, and it's somewhere along the line. I I met a good girl and, you know, I couldn't have any of that going on anymore. So what can you do legally in your backyard that's rock and roll? And that was peppers for me. So it, it became an obsession. It started off as just a, a hobby, kind of like collecting bubblegum cards, you know, different varietals of peppers. And eventually I made my way to to ULL to, to college. Kara kind of pushed me, my wife, Kara, to, to go in there and doing that. Mm-hmm. Learned a little bit more about the horticultural uh, aspects of peppers because that was my interest, you know, so. Created this this monster pepper that's on Hulu, super hot, and uh, you know you Google yourself five years later, and you're all over the place. It's uh, <laughs> it it just started out with a lot of passion, a little know-how,
0: and a lot of luck. So with peppers, it's the heat, of course. Is it the adventure? Is it the science? Is it the creation? What is it for you?
3: Oh, it's it's kind of all of the above. I love the creation aspect because you know I played music. I songs I uh, worked in audio production so I like making hot sauce labels I like creating new varieties but for me at the time it was just the adventure because you know children are the best scientists they're they're uninhibited by thought you know they just want like let's do it you know and mm-hmm. it, it why can't it be done and I was kind of like a child at heart so I was just like hey what if I take this pepper and crossbreed it with this pepper you know and I end up with Something that's hotter.
0: Uh huh. This pepper you've developed, the seven pot primo, without Correct. getting into the Scovilles and everything else, can you describe
3: exactly how hot it is? Sure, sure. So if you sat down at a table to eat one of my peppers, it would be like actually eating over 360 jalapenos at once. That's the heat at once. That's uh-huh. the heat equivalent. So that's something somebody can get their mind around. You know, you're talking. Insanity heat—it's it, a body thing. It becomes more than a tongue. It becomes a vasodilation blisk, a, a bear's chasing you, your endorphin and Keflin rush. Uh, it's something that goes beyond this physical world. <laughs> so, what does it taste <laughs> like, Troy? It's great taste. You know, before it hits you in the face, you know, <laughs> it's going to taste like very fruity, very floral, sweet. And then it builds, and then it builds. And, you know, some 30 minutes to an hour, it's going to build. So when we make our products with it, obviously, we're not putting that much of it in it. Now, I do have something that has a lot of it in it for the Chili Heads, you know, the Primo Army. But it's, it's, uh, it's something that, thank God for my wife. You know, my wife is the halo and I'm the horns. She's always going to be the sweet and I'm the spicy. So... That's the kind of dichotomy of our relationship. You know, it just kind of balances me out.
0: So you've got the pepper. What other things do you have with Primo's Peppers?
3: Oh, yes, yes. So we do dehydrated pepper powder, a hot sauce, the farmer's daughter pepper jelly, which is my wife's kind of baby that, you know, I just kind of like peppered up for, you know, pun intended. We have a Verde and we're thinking about all kinds of things. But if you watch the, the super hot doc, you'll see that. I'm outstretched. <laughs> it's it's kind of like we've done this whole thing backwards. People try to promote themselves to to make money and and be known. Where I'm known. Now I'm just trying to monetize it. You know, since the the movie dropped a couple of days ago, we've had thousands upon thousands of orders and hits on the website. So it's really like, bear with me. I'll get you, we're gonna get it out. And, and uh, we appreciate it, but it's uh, it's growing pains. It's a good problem to have, mm-hmm. but, you know, we're still the same people and I'll always be that person, you know. I never did it for money, you know, just did it for just passion.
0: We're talking with Troy Primo, pepper developer and founder of Primo's Peppers. How did Hulu hear about you?
3: Well, you know, I guess my reputation precedes me, so they uh, they probably Googled it. We've done Chili Heads out at you know Canada and a few other flicks. Um, Crazy Hot, they just knew me as, as this this guy that had this incredible pepper and had had quite a story, you know, a little controversy in there. And with the Carolina Reaper and the in the Sun Pot Primo, you can look that up. And um, they thought it would be a, a neat story, and it kind of what they realized once they started filming filming my family is that wow, you can take away the controversy. And what you have is is uh, likable people that have a hell of a lot of passion and love for what they're doing. So I'm grateful that we were portrayed, you know, mm-hmm. exactly like the director said that that we would, you know. And and um, so they, you know, it just rolled. It, it happened all in 2019, way before the pandemic. And I'm pretty sure High Noon Entertainment, who had originally contacted me, had been turned down by every like major network. And then it happened. And I didn't want to believe it really, you know, I didn't know if I, by that time I had a child, you know, (laughs) 48 at the time I had my first son, you know, he's going to be four tomorrow and, and, you know. Changes uh, things, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, priorities change. Maybe I don't want to do this. Do I want to expose my family to the world? There were all these questions. And once we got through the answers. And uh, I said, baby, we have to tell my wife, we have to do this. She's like, no, we're not going to do this. I said, no, we have to. This is, this is an opportunity of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And we did. And I just had to make sure that as far as the direction and the production would be, you know, indicative of what, what I wanted to do. Meaning like um, my involvement would be exactly that. That wouldn't put me in a panic box or <laughs> do a fear factor type thing with me. But- I just want honesty.
0: There seems to be a big interest in chili pepper eating competitions, and why do you think people are drawn to that sort of competition?
3: It's you know danger. I I have a philosophical like answer to that. And I think maybe it's hardwired in in the human psyche to uh, protect ourselves from from danger. You know, like we want to know where the danger is. We might not want to partake in it. But be it unfortunate car wreck on the interstate when everybody's rubbernecking to see what's going on.
0: Is it thrill-seeking?
3: It is. It is definitely rock and roll. And look, I love the the Martha Stewart cooking shows and that of culinary arts. But I also love the thrill-seeking side, the WWF of pepper-eating rock and roll element. And in fact, I kind of lean more towards that side in a lot of ways because of my past. It's... That kind of like endorphin and Keflin seeking high. That's natural. They're good for you, actually. But there's more C and you know more vitamins in there. There's there's a uh, cancer curing properties. They're they're researching, but you're not gonna die. You're you're gonna be all right.
0: Are you gonna continue pursuing having the hottest pepper in the world?
3: You know, I was kind of jaded with that whole thing for a while. Um, I've been burnt a few times, and we touched upon it in the the movie. People rip you off. They take your pepper and rename it. But after going through the experience, and Johnny Scoville, my buddy and friend, and at the end, you know, I'm not going to give away anything in case people want to watch it, but he asked me, do I want to keep doing this? Do I want to keep pushing it? And it inspired me. This whole process inspired me to keep going. And I have a Louisiana creeper. I have another pepper that... I've been, you know, holding on to, and I've had it in cold storage, and I I cranked it out again, man. So look out, you know, I'm gonna keep pushing.
0: Troy Primo, developer of the Seven Pot Primo Pepper and founder of Primo's Peppers. Thanks for being here.
3: Oh, well, thanks for having me, man, you know? Peace and peppers. <laughs>
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Bob Pavlovich. Thanks to our guests, The Times-Picayune, The Advocate's editorial director and columnist, Stephanie Grace, Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club president, Elroy James, and founder of Primo's Peppers, Troy Primo. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our assistant producer, Aubrey Procell. Our engineer, Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at Rouse's.com with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.